Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I have the passage for you on the insert as well. We are getting to the end of the wonderful book of Ephesians from the Apostle Paul to the church, first to Ephesus, but to all of us now by extension over the years, being God's Word. It is timeless, very, very applicable and relevant for us. Um, We have been looking at relationships that we have. Every earthly relationship you can think of is covered, and it's covered in light of who we are in Christ. The opening part of Ephesians is all about how we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, and we are new creatures now. Individually, we are new creatures because of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and gives us aid in understanding God's Word and applying His Word. We're just new people when we come to Christ, and that's what Ephesians is explaining how that's happened. But it then goes to how we are also plugged into a new community that God is raising up and creating a new community, his church. We're a local expression of his wider church uh, where individual new creatures come together for a new community. And we're a family in that respect. We're united by Christ. It's all about Christ and his work for us and what this has done for us as a new community. Fill with the Spirit. Now, in that light, the second half of the book is telling those adopted sons and daughters of Christ not how to stay Christians or become Christians, but because we are adopted sons and daughters with new identities, we will conduct our relationships in a different way, in a way that manifests the gospel that we have been shown and have grasped. With that, we're moving to the last part, the last relationship cited, And you'll notice here, it even relates to our workplace, um, where we earn a living, you might say, our station in life. Uh, We'll we'll seek to connect the passage and its modern application. So please follow with me as I read Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, Jesus Christ has completely transformed our hearts and minds. We gracious, we are so thankful for your graciousness to us in Jesus. At the same time, we are in constant need of reminding from your word and the help of your Holy Spirit to apply what we read. Today, we consider our work or our employment For some, it may apply to them being business owners or maybe they're leaders or supervisors or overseers with authority in the workplace. Please give us understanding of your word and how the gospel informs even this relationship. Lord, give us appreciation for the lordship of our Savior Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. This section of Ephesians uh, paints a picture of how All our human relationships we can think of are transformed or redefined or refreshed, renewed in Christ. 
We can think in a new way about these relationships in light of the gospel, in light of our salvation. Being right with God makes us right with one another as brothers and sisters. And there's so much to explore there, to see renewed, different from what the world says and does or is capable of doing. We saw first how the gospel transforms our relationship between brothers and sisters in the church. Then we saw how the gospel informs and changes our relationship between husbands and wives. We even saw that relationship to be a manifestation or a picture of Christ's love for the church. As a husband sacrifices for his wife, his wife follows that lead. So Christ sacrifices for the church. We follow Christ. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel on display, the marriage relationship. It stands out. But it's not just there. It also helps us, Paul helps us in light of the gospel, shows us how parents relate to children. Um, in, talk about the two areas now, marriage and then family, children, that take up so much of our time and passion. And he gives us direction for that as well, for the grace of God shown by parents towards children, and for children to also return that grace, the grace that's been shown to them through Christ, to their parents. The gospel revolutionizes relationships and the key relationships. Now we come to yet another relationship that takes up so much of our time and energy. So many of our days are spent under usually the authority of an employer, uh, a business we may work for, a company may we, may, we may work for, an institution. Or maybe you have the opportunity to run a business or lead a company. Or maybe within a company you answer to people, but you also are responsible for people. This passage speaks really clearly to us as employees and employers. We'll see it all here. All the relationships are covered and are affected by our relationship to Christ, every one of them. You know, I was thinking of how this passage really has the same message over and over again. The lordship of Christ extends to everything. Because of what Christ has done for us, we follow him, our Savior. He's laid himself down for us. And so we want to know his instructions for our marriages, our families, and our work. All of it goes back to him. What a practical message. Now that we are Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, how might that affect the workers that we are or the kind of boss we are? It makes sense that who we are in Christ will reach all parts of our lives. That's certainly the expectation of Paul for Christians in Ephesus and to us. I remember, I have plenty of stories of work experiences that I would share, and I know you do too, but I, one that always stood out to me that I appreciated was when I was in seminary, I worked for, Nathan and I worked together for a, a preschool, it was a Montessori preschool, and that version of school is kind of chaotic in my opinion. I mean, these classrooms with tons of stuff, media if you will, for kids to play with and to uh, explore and such. It's a different model. So I was like the janitor for the week and I had to straighten that up somehow. Um, and my wife will attest that straightening up isn't my strong suit, and so here I am expected by my boss to do that. There are two houses on, old houses on about five acres, maybe more. And a part of the acreage, half of it was taken up by two ponies that we were responsible to feed and take care of the stall. They're machines, let me just tell you, these uh, ponies. They eat a lot, let's put it that way. At any rate, we're taking care of them during the week. And then on Saturday, we would report or first thing in the morning and our boss would come. And he was the co-owner of the Montessori School with his wife. They were both retired educators. He was semi-retired from being a professor at St. Louis University. 
And so he would meet us in the morning and he would bring these huge pastries from some, some uh, bakery in town. He'd make these, before we got there at seven o'clock, he'd already gone to the bakery and gotten these awesome pastries. And as seminary students, anything you could taste of the higher life, you, you just latched onto immediately. It wasn't ramen noodles, so we ate it up. We enjoyed those pastries that our boss brought us. And then we would casually go over what we were going to do for the day. And there'd usually be something to fix, always in that property, or some project he wanted to do to improve it. And we would listen to the report. He'd tell us what we would do. And then we'd work for a few hours, and then he'd drive off while we were still working, and he'd come back with these massive sandwiches from some delicatessen. They're big old sandwiches with homemade bread, cheese, and I know it's getting close to lunch, but just imagine this fresh ham and beef and all the stuff mixed in with a little bit of Italian dressing on it. And I, I mean, he got chips and drinks. Too. We're, we're, the sandwich alone, you could live off of this for a couple days. And so he'd bring it in, and for lunch, we would eat, eat the sandwich and just talk about how things were going. He'd ask us about the things at seminary, and he'd tell us what's happened in his life. We'd go out and finish our day. I just wanted to work for this guy. I just wanted to do good stuff for him, to make sure we went above and beyond. He just compelled us by his kindness toward us to want to work hard for him and for the school. Now, even if he had not done that, my calling is clear by scriptures to work hard for him because I'm working for the Lord. But what a difference it makes when you have someone who's overseeing that shows that kind of kindness and love for you. This idea follows beautifully through. It flows through what we've been studying in all these relationships. It's you've been shown great kindness in Christ, the gospel, in your life. You've been relieved of the burden of your sins because of Christ. This should permeate your relationships. The way you act towards others should be graciously first, whether you're an employee towards your boss or your boss towards an employee. I think the passage is applicable for this. The lordship of Christ extends to every aspect of life. We're honoring Christ. We're thanking him for his salvation in all the ways we relate with one another. And this includes the workplace. Now, let's go to the text together, and you'll see we are immediately hit with a barrier that we have to get over in the first part of the sermon. I've been talking in terms of employees and employers, but I know you're saying, yeah, well, it says slaves in here, slaves and masters. You can't just jump from that to employees and employers. Well, now, technically, the ESV says bond servants. Doesn't that sound better to you? Bond servants? Well, it's the same Greek word. You might as well be slave. It is the same Greek word. It says bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. That's verse 5. So we want to answer, ask and answer a question before we move on to make the application for today. I don't want to just jump over the fact that there's a bit of a, a generational disconnect here or an era disconnect for us. And we carry certain baggage as a certain audience when we hear these words. Let's take a moment to address the issue of slavery as Paul would have seen it in Paul's time. That's the immediate context in which he's dealing with it. That way we can make a modern application that's legitimate. Verse 5, bondservants, which is the word doulos or douloi, plural, that's the word for servant or slave or bondservant. They're all fine translations. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. I think the ESV chose bondservants because that word is used to describe Christians in relationship to Christ. We're his bondservants. In a, in a response to his grace, we are his slaves in that respect. It's not servile with servile fear, but we're happy to have him be our master. And so I think the SV for consistency used this term. Bond servants obey your earthly masters. It's used in other ways. 
But here we know what Paul's referring to. He's talking about the slavery that was common in the Greco-Roman era, especially in the Roman Empire. Especially, there are laws um, that tell us the descriptions of the limits of slavery. It was a very developed part or fabric of the culture in those days, the socioeconomic culture. It was integral to it. All the people would have understood it. And here's the thing that I'd like you to notice first when we're trying to bridge that time, Paul's day, to ours. The first thing to notice, Paul is talking to Christians. Ephesians is not written to the city of Ephesus. It's written to the church in Ephesus, to the faithful in the Lord, as it says in the opening words of the, of the epistle. So he's talking to the local church, and he's saying, slaves, obey your masters. In other words, there were slaves and masters in the same church together, brothers and sisters in Christ, who worshiped together, who lived life together. They knew each other. This was very practical. This wasn't just talking about an institution outside of the church. He's talking to Christians. Now that you're in Christ, there's this social institution that's the world over. In light of that relationship that you have as slaves and masters, slaves obey your masters and masters, you do the same kind of respect back, and it's revolutionizing this institution that was in existence and has been in existence in some form, in some place in the world, really since the dawn of man. So he acknowledges that these are fellow Christians he's addressing. It gives us a little bit of an indication of the way that it was practiced in those days. It's not quite the vision that we have of American slavery or European slavery that we are so familiar with that's only been abolished for some 150 years. The kind of slavery that's based on man-stealing and is racist in its very makeup, its, per, its aim, and very dehumanizing and brutal and so forth. Now, that leads me to the second thing we have to think about. First, he's talking to Christians who are existing together, tells us something about the institution itself. But secondly, let's pause for a moment and just be honest that we do see this through jaded lens. It's impossible for us not to because of our history. And it's brought up over and over again because it's had such a detrimental uh, impact on our, on our present even to this day. There's still wounds that go back from what we know has happened in our country. But the slavery of the first century that Paul is referring to is not the same. There's a difference. I'm not saying any slavery is better than the other, but I am saying it's different. It was a woven in part of the social system that they found themselves in. You'll notice Paul doesn't condemn it, but he doesn't condone it either. All sorts of human slavery practices occurred before the time of the first century and then after. But there are some unique features to this first century. Um, the development of the Roman Empire um, as a means of leverage for people to become citizens. There are so many ways in which you could find yourself enslaved or being a slave. Um, one way is your region would be conquered, there'd be a military loss, and by military loss, you might be a slave. Um, there could be you got yourself into a certain amount of debt in some way and had no way to pay it off, and you, you become under the ownership of someone else. You're a slave. It could be that you wanted to purchase Roman citizenship. You came from outside the region, and so there's certain people that you could be their slave and then eventually you would earn freedom. In fact, a unique feature of Roman slavery is at least half of the people who were slaves had a chance to get out of that slavery by working a certain amount of years or someone paying for you to be free. There are multiple ways you could earn your freedom. They typically would move to and fro with others. It wasn't as though you would necessarily even know you were standing next to someone who was a slave of somebody else. It was part of the social caste. In fact, People who did not have a slave were usually too poor uh, to have one in the first place, and they had other struggles in their life. Um, it was one of the social castes that were understood, castes that were understood in those times, and that's how 
the New Testament, or that's where the New Testament appears, is in the midst against that backdrop in Paul's writing to tell Christians how they need to function now in light of what's happening, especially as the church is just starting, brand new. You know, it may interest you to realize that out of maybe 200 million citizens in the Roman Empire, that 60 million of them were slaves. And they would work along, you could be a dock worker alongside of a slave and you wouldn't know that person is necessarily a slave. I mean, you probably realize that they were beholden to somebody else. Their wages would go to somebody else. So they were working there on behalf of somebody else as part of the business. But it was common for dock workers, doctors even, sweepers, teachers, business managers. One could be a slave and one could be a freedman. It's different. Now, make no mistake, there were slaves around the Roman Empire that were treated brutally brutally, the worst kind of treatment you can imagine. Uh, So I'm not suggesting or painting with a broad stroke. But Paul's speaking to a local congregation where in Ephesus, we know in Ephesus and Corinth, uh, these are two cities where half the population were slaves. Um, It would have been totally normal to expect there'd be a mixture in the congregation. And he'd been there two and a half years. He knew them well. So now he's writing to them and telling them, Hey, the relationship you have as Christians is the most important relationship. So you have this system you're in and living in, and this is how you need to function within that system. It's important to see the proper, through the proper Greco-Roman lens, I believe, to fully appreciate how this makes modern application. You know, it's interesting that just before this time, uh, about 60 years before Jesus was born, for about a 40-year period, the Roman Empire went through liberating half a million slaves. It was meant to be a stimulus to the economy and everything else where they put out freedmen who were no longer under their burdens and then they would go around and find uh, and help develop more commerce. They needed this and they saw this as a, re- a way to do this. So Paul's coming at a time when there's some amount of reform happening even in the Roman system of slavery when he writes. It's different from what we're used to knowing about slavery in the 18th and the 19th century in our own country. Now, I do want to address one other thing before we move to the text and apply it to today, because I think there are clear applications just based on what I've already noted. But something else that you might have wondered, I know I've asked myself too when I read Paul, when I read Jesus, when I read, when I read on the New Testament or the New Testament on this topic or other uh, issues of the day type topics, social issues, economic, political issues that might arise, you'll notice that the New Testament navigates lots of them and, and they don't address the issue, the wrong itself. They move forward, the, the people in the Bible, talking about Paul and Jesus especially, move forward with the mission they have. They stop and minister as they can, but they don't seem to be trying to rectify the whole of the problem. And I think that there's some good answers for why that is the case that we should think about. In other words, why didn't Paul just speak a word to abolish slavery? No, it may not have been American uh, chattel slavery, but it's certainly the kind of slavery, it's still slavery, human beings owned by other people. That's not right, and that's correct. But think in terms of where they're living. Two-thirds of the population was engaged in some way with it, and it was woven throughout. John Stott says it well. Christians were at the first an insignificant group in the empire. So the first Christians, just growing from the book of Acts into the time of Ephesus where there's churches sprouting up, but they're still small. Their religion was itself unlawful and they were politically powerless. That's just the fact of the Christians in those days. Besides, slavery was at the time an indispensable part of the fabric of Roman society. In most cities, there were many times more slaves than free people. 
It would therefore have been impossible to abolish slavery at a single stroke without the complete disintegration of society. Even if Christians liberated their slaves, there would have, there would have, they would have condemned them to a life of unemployment and extreme poverty, no doubt. A.B. Card writes in commenting on this era, ancient society was economically as dependent on slavery as modern society is on machinery. And anyone proposing its abolition would have been seen as a seditious fanatic. It's true. Paul could have made it a cause. But Paul's cause was to make Christ known. The cause of the church on the whole, corporately, is to make the Great Commission known, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus will be with us as we make that proclamation. And his ministers have to be about that central theme, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, making it clear, proclaiming it so that all know, so that the congregation knows, and that we see how it applies to every aspect of our life, and we are clear in our proclamation of that message to the world. The church has that mission, and that was Paul's mission. His mission and the church's mission is not to reform all the social ills or the political ills or the economic ills. That's not the mission of the church. That's not the mission of the pastor either. It's redeemed people, however, I would submit, are always the one that God uses to bring these reforms. I could show you that historically. I'll mention a few. But for now, though, make clear, be clear that Paul's reason for not stopping and just addressing that evil is that the first order of business and the first problem people have is not economic, it's not political, it's not social. It's spiritual. It's supremely spiritual that we have a God who's created us and we're completely estranged from him because of our sin. And we're due unto eternal death for that. And that affects our living now and it'll affect our eternity. And the church has given the gospel, which is how you can be right with God. And we cannot get off that central theme as the church. And Paul knew this. And he was going to drive forward with this no matter what. He couldn't stop and address every social issue. But knowing that as people came to Christ, that's the way you'll see those things addressed. As people renewed in Christ take their place in this world and they impact the world in the ways that only Christians can that's exactly why Paul demonstrates it the way he does. It's a matter of mission for him as he goes forward. And I'd submit to you, as people come to Christ, as individual believers come to Christ, wherever God has you, you're going to make a salt effect on that place. You're going to sprinkle the salt of the gospel there by your presence and by your focus. And there will be many things that Christians will be able to relieve that are temporal results of the fall. So many of them. You know, historically, when there was a need for health care and healing, it was Christians who started the hospitals. Uh, historically, when there was a need for education, there were Christians who started the schools. When there was a need to minister to the poor, to feed the poor, to house the poor, Christians provided food and shelter. People who are transformed by the gospel will start to have an impact on their surroundings, even if it's in limited capacities. So the church has to constantly be clear about the gospel and not just assume everyone gets it clearly. They don't. They don't. You know this. You talk to people all the time who are confused about how they can be right with God. We ourselves need a regular dose of the means of grace so we don't forget it. In 1789, it was following his conversion to Christianity that William Wilberforce went out, especially in the political sphere, to see that wrong, the, the, the wrong of slavery, especially the transatlantic version that we're so familiar with. It was his being a Christian that compelled him to see people in the way that God sees them and go after this for them. And he did it in the sphere God placed him in. And it's because he had solid, regular gospel preaching that he was always clear on what the gospel was, and that it was natural for him to go wherever he was placed and make an impact. You know, I was listening to a sermon uh, 
by Alistair Begg on this topic, and I respect how he put it. And of course, he has an accent, so it sounds even better and more convincing when he says it. I just talk fast like someone from Buffalo. I'm sorry, that's what you get. But at any rate, he was talking about from his earliest time in ministry, he would constantly have people calling him to preach about the issues of the day. Were the issues that are important that Christians should care about? Abortion, racism, what Supreme Court justice should be elected, this, that, the other. And I got to tell you, I get the same thing all the time. And he said to that point in his 35 plus year ministry, he had resisted those calls and I'm going to keep trying for my 24 years that I've been here and more to not let that ever be the main thing. That's not what you need from me. What you need from me is clarity about the gospel and how the gospel informs who you are as a person, who we are as a people. And I'm positive that if I stay true to that, as the issues of the day arise, as citizens that you are, you'll take the action you need to take. You'll do it on the basis of what the scripture says and what God's called you to. And the church and your pastor's job is to make sure we're clear on the gospel. And that's not a little thing, by the way. It's a huge thing for all of us. Now, as a private citizen, I got some opinions, and I'll tell them to you if you want to ask me. But from this pulpit, what our focus is on is how we can be right with God and how we can live in light of that and make sure this world knows it because social statuses and situations and political situations and economic ones will ebb and flow and they'll change all the time. And the church finds itself everywhere. We've got to be clear on the central purpose. And our purpose is to preach clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what will actually have the effect we long to see in all these ways that are what we see as the issues of the day. The gospel addresses all of them and a transformed people are the ones who are going to go and make that difference. Begg said something very wise. Whenever the issue that is central, namely the gospel, becomes peripheral, we get taken over by an issue. Inevitably, the thing that is peripheral becomes the central thing. You see it all the time. All the time. Now, if Christian slaves and masters followed Paul's instruction, imagine what it would do just in Ephesus. If they would just all love each other like that and start acting differently within that institution, it would necessarily bring a focus upon what's happened in these transformed lives and who did the transforming in their lives. What's immediately noticeable is how he just treats everybody as equal, whether they're slaves or masters, in the body of Christ, in Christ. In fact, when he writes to the Galatians, he's saying, listen, there's no slave or free, Greek or uh, Roman, uh, Jewish, man, woman. He's not saying that there's no differences between people. He's saying in Christ, in our salvation, we have this union that transcends every other kind of union you can imagine. It's unlike any other union people could speak of. It's more powerful than any other union. Now, let's start to move towards making an application of this passage to our situations today. Now, in America, I think that we have a bit of a skewed view of employment because we really have it pretty good. Um, I was helping my son go over some applications he's filling out for a job as he comes out of college, and he's got a couple interviews with these companies, and he would, he would ask them a bunch of questions, and, and I would tell me, ask him this, ask him the benefits, this, that. And I just caught myself talking about this, even in my era compared to what I remember my father's um, growing up was during labor wars and things that were happening in unions and stuff. The reasons why unions, unions needed to happen way back in the 40s, 50s, 60s was because of the way you know, workers were treated. I recognize there's all sorts of things that come into that as far as abuse and things. But just thinking about where we are now, and I'm looking at his benefits list as a dude who's coming out of college, first job. Should just be happy anybody's going to give him an interview, let alone work there. And then he's looking at the list. This is a 403B, and there's a, there's a health club, and there's health insurance, dental insurance. But I'm like, this is incredible what we get. That is not the case the world over. There's 6.5 billion people on the planet. I would say less than a billion live in a place that has anything close to that, and probably even less than that. It's just the truth. 
So if you're a Christian in Africa where there's sweatshops and people are brutalized and have to work and there's no other option, they're not called slaves, but they live in a terrible situation. How do Christians respond to that? Um, if you're in a place in Latin America, similarly, uh, where they have factories that you have to work, that's one factory that you all pretty much have to work at. There's no other way to make a living for your family. Many people the world over have this experience. My first year at Juarez, they drove us through Juarez, and this is 20 years ago. Things have changed. They've gotten worse there as far as the economy goes. But in those days, they had just built all those NAFTA-related factories. Now, I understand how people may see it here, but for there, it was the sole sustenance for 70% of the population worked in those factories somehow to put food on the table. Uh, the majority of people the world over deal with that kind of thing. But you know, it's not been that long ago that we can even appreciate that in our own country. I grew up in western New York, the, the, the Rust Belt as it's called, you know, Detroit and Cleveland, Pittsburgh and Buffalo. And in Buffalo, there was a time where 70% of the workforce, and more than that if you count the supporting, the supporting industries, 70% from 1904 to the early 1970s worked for Bethlehem Steel. And that's what the Rust Belt comes from. When that steel left because they didn't need it anymore and they imported it all and so and so forth, you don't, those places went out of business. Whole communities that depended on everything. Even the railroad industry where my dad worked, that was related to transporting what? Steel. It just, everyone was dependent. I thought, well, that's just the 70s and the 80s and that changed. Well, then I moved to Wichita in the 90s. In the early 90s, when Sherry and I first got married, the place was so depressed, you could feel it. It reminded me of being in Western New York because the four different aircraft companies that built all the planes were, were downsizing tremendously. In every, it seemed like half of that place was somehow tied to the aircraft uh, building industry, whether it be cabinet makers or electricians or the place itself. So I think we can appreciate the world over that there's a certain dependence we have on employers, on businesses, places we go to earn a living. That's the common experience of people the world over. So now when you think of all of that, and Paul comes with this message, it is revolutionizing when we as Christians apply it in our workplaces, whatever that looks like for you, either as an employee or as an employer. This is why Stott says that the exact same principle can be applied that we find in this passage from slaves to masters to employers and employees. With that, let's look at verse 5, finally, and we'll see what it instructs us to do in light of who we are in Christ. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So this is for employees now, the people who are working for somebody, who are laboring for somebody in order to earn a living, and it says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. There's several things that this passage between verses 5 and 8 tell us for employer, employees. First of all, to do so with fear and trembling. And here's something that's mentioned in every one of the four verses. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. You'll see in every verse some reference to who we really work for. You actually work for Christ. God has ordained where you are, your station, as the Puritans used to call it. What station in life? That might be partly, it's not just your family, it's where you're working, where you're laboring. In, in this case, we're to do so with fear and trembling, recognizing it's a divine appointment to some degree, and that also God is ultimately who, our, who we answer to. He's who we live our life of worship for. So even our work is unto God. So do so with respect, not cringing servile, servility, but a reverent acknowledgement that it is Jesus who is ultimately the authority over all things, including the company we work for. So do so in obedience to our 
bosses, if you will, with fear and trembling. But also, verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, not just superficially so people see you and then think you're good because you're, while they're looking, you're, you're working busily, but then as soon as they're not looking, you're not acting the same. You're, just ple- you're not doing it for God, you're doing it for man. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. He uses the same word now and applies it to Jesus. So Christ is, is who we, he's our master, and whatever our master who has saved us with his blood, has purchased us salvation, assured us of eternity, that master tells us to work hard, we work hard. Because we want to say, yes, our master is right. We want you to love our master too, because he's so lovely in what he has done for us. With a sincere heart, just as you would Christ, serve, work hard for your boss, for your employer. Not faking hard work. You know, you're all standing, I've had this happen a few times where you're all at a construction type job and you're shoveling into the rocks. You might have to have this happen on a more sanctified version on a mission trip. And so you're putting your shovel in. You're noticing that someone just keeps putting hardly anything on their shovel and they're not making a whole lot of trips. Don't be that guy. The one that's always looking to kind of get away with doing as little as they can. Whatever you can do, do it in your power to do it. And you're because you're doing it ultimately. It's bondservants of Christ. Conscientious, not just working when the boss is watching. Also, look at verse 7. Rendering servants with a good will. So you're diligent about it. You're genuine about wanting to do this as to the Lord and not to man. It reminds us multiple times who we're doing this for. Christ, our Savior, and our Master. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. It does not matter what your status is in this, whatever social caste your particular country or region observes. That does not matter to God. He only sees his children. There's only two races ultimately anyways. Those who are in Christ and those who are not. And he's looking at those who are in Christ and he sees what you're doing. It doesn't matter what the, the social word is about you. The true word is that you are his child and he's watching and he wants us to live out in light of the gospel that we have been partakers of. So honor Jesus by working respectfully for your boss, wholeheartedly, willingly, uh, expecting, trying to do what you can to do the best job you can. John Stott, I refer to often because he's worthy of referring to, said once Christian slaves were clear in their minds that their primary responsibility was to serve the Lord, their service to their earthly masters would become exemplary. One of the great fruits of the Protestant Reformation was a renewal of our understanding of our life as an offering to God. All of our life, not just our work life. Every aspect of our life is an offering of praise and worship to God. This helps us go into the workplace wanting to work hard as we honor our Savior with what we we do. Again, not to earn something from our Savior, but because we have been saved, we want to follow him and be a light wherever we are and be effective, be fruitful, be helpful. And I would say this to you, brothers and sisters. I think something unique to our time is a coming pressure or persecution upon Christians. I don't have to go far to prove that point, but you're seeing it more and more. Now, it won't just happen in a political sphere or a social sphere. You'll find it happen in the work sphere. Many of you will deal with issues in your corporations or your businesses where those businesses or corporations will be pressured to compromise Christian ideas or go against mock Christian ideas, and you'll struggle under that. So you have to do your best very practically speaking, to be the best employee you can with the things that you're asked to do so you're above reproach, this will not only help you in that era, but it will also 
shine as a light as the world degrades and digresses because there's a huge price to pay for the culture pushing Christianity out. They don't even know what they're doing. So to the degree that we as believers take this command from our Savior, working for him wherever we are, may he give us grace in those places to not just survive, but to transform, to have effect on our employer. That's an encouragement to you. I want you to notice finally in verse 9, speaking now to employers, we've looked at employees, and there's only one verse for the employers. But Paul does what Paul does so well. Masters, do the same to them. Everything I just said, if you want respect, show respect. If you want hardworking employees, work hard with them or for them. Show yourself to be engaged in this thing you've called them to or that they're under you concerning and, and lead out in that way by being one who's working hard. And stop your threatening, by the way, knowing that he who is both their master is yours in heaven as well. It's not just that God's their master and they should work hard. He's your master and you're responsible for all these people. And these are people created in God's image. Don't you see how if Paul says this in the era of slavery that's so pervasive, he's absolutely revolutionizing the way you would look at this. And if Christians would do this, imagine the impact it would have just on the society around. He may not be able to change everything in a stroke of a a pen, a quill, if you will. But with Christians showing something different, there's impact that has ripple effects. And I would argue that most of the things that have happened in the world that are positive for social reform have come from people who are born again. Employers, there's no partiality with him. Remember that. You have authority. You can lord over your power. You have the authority to do whatever. You could be unfair if you want. You're the boss. But remember, God is not unfair. And be concerned more with God's view of things than people's view. This can go a long, long way in seeing great impact made across the board. The way we'd want to see people come to know Christ could be so manifested in the relationship between employees and employers and then Christian employers as they care for people under them. Don't always pick whatever the minimum is that the state requires. Pick what you can afford. you got to run a business. No one's saying uh, bankrupt yourself to give your employees so much. But think in terms of the graciousness that Christ has shown you in the gospel. How could you display that to your workers? You've heard of so many great stories, and many of you work for people who have displayed these things in your life, and you're still grateful for them. I mean, I'm just talking about a pastry and a sandwich, and I still appreciate this guy's grace to me. I remember working at a warehouse. It was not a fun job. It was a nasty job, as a matter of fact. But every summer, they kept hiring me back, and they didn't hire a lot of other people back at times. And they kept hiring me back. And even though I didn't really like the job much, loading and unloading trucks for 10 hours a day for six days, and then all the way till I went to college, I couldn't have gone to college without it. I'm super grateful for those summer jobs. Uh, there's this, the graciousness they showed in rehiring me and paying me fair enough. Employers, so much opportunity to display the grace of God to people in your life and make an impact. I'll close with a story, a true story of someone that I know really well that I've always been excited to see God working in his life. I know the son more than the father, but I know the father well too. It's the story of what I call two Mike Mitchells. Uh, Mike and Betsy Mitchell are a family that live not too far from here as a crow flies. They are the first, one of the first families that committed their children to come to our Christian school. Um, Their daughter Megan was one of the first nine that came to Westminster at the time. Of course, it's now Heritage, but at that time it was Westminster back in 1996. I got here in 1997, met them immediately. They went to a different local church, but were committed to what we were doing in developing our school. And so their uh, kids, one, two, three, all came to the school. And Mike at that time owned an apparel 
an apparel shop that did mostly shirts and such, but they did other things as well. Jones and Mitchell, you probably remember them. Now, partway through uh, his developing his company, there's some things that came to his attention. I remember him talking to me about a, a goal to get out of depending on buying shirts from overseas. Because the shirts that were typically built or uh, made overseas, whether it be in China or Indonesia, other places, they used, a lot of times it would be slave-like labor or underage labor, and it was brutal conditions. But you could not be competitive for an era in selling in that industry if you didn't have cheap enough shirts to sell. You just couldn't compete, and it bugged him. And as he grew in Christ, he's a, a relatively young believer when he started the company and then started growing, it bugged him more and more. He finally decided to get out of the business altogether, sold it in 2000. It wasn't solely for that. It was a good time to sell and all those reasons. But he still had as a plan to figure out how to do the same thing he did without violating or making people suffer to make t-shirts. And I got to admit to you, I'm thinking, that's, who thinks like this? Who could really make a dent? It's such a, such a big problem. Everything we're wearing right now probably is some, some part in that, and it bugs us all. What, what can you do? Well, he didn't worry about what everyone else should do. He just thought to himself, what could I do that might make a difference in something I know? Because he was really good at doing what he did. Well, as the Lord led him, he would come to Heritage when we would have these career fairs, and he would talk about doing these businesses, whether it be micro-businesses, other businesses, businesses that had the idea that they would employ people for living wages and still do the same thing, but have enough of a margin to still have a good, profitable business. And he would tell these stories about it, and I got to admit, I'm thinking, great thinking, you're retired, you don't need to worry about that anymore. But then the earthquake happened in Haiti, and... Uh, a couple organizations, Christian organizations, started noticing all the need was there for employment and such. And he got engaged with that first. And then from that, he got the idea with his son, who is now finishing his, his second year at Wheaton College at that time. He was finishing his second year, and his dad said, Mike, Mikey Jr., we call, or he was Mikey, his dad's Mike. Mikey, what do you think about helping me do this new approach to apparel? We'll set up factories in different parts of the world, even one in Kansas City, and will purposely employ people who are marginalized by wherever they're living. They started in Haiti by building a, a factory there that built shirts, and they were able to pay the people who make the shirts a living wage for Haiti. Then, for some Christian missionary he met a few times, found a lead in Egypt of all places. And he starts another factory that makes shirts in Egypt doing the exact same thing relative to their economy that they can live at a w living wage there and not have to live for slave labor. And then he started one in Kansas City, just, uh, just not too far from here, in o North Overland Park. And identical three factories that build the same thing. And there he hires mostly refugees who have fled their countries. They, they've got um, asylum in the U.S. and he hires them there so that they can sustain their families. And he has three of these now. And now he's turned it over to his son, so he's, Mike's back to being retired. If you know Mike, he's never going to retire, but he's on to other stuff. And Mikey, who just graduated from Wheaton a couple years ago, is the CEO and owner of Restoration Apparel. And listen to what his website says. I love this application, in my mind, of the gospel in their life to the way that they're trying to make an impact in the world. He, their website says, by blending domestic and international manufacturing, we're able to offer very affordable pricing. And because we fully own and operate our three facilities, we are able to maintain tight control over quality and delivery times. We produce 1,800-plus custom units a day, providing dignified work for local refugees and marginalized people. Every shirt produced acts to restore dignity in an industry where customer and worker mistreatment is the norm. I just love this picture 
of people living out the gospel in their life. I know most of us, I know I can't think that big and I don't know how to do that kind of stuff. Most of us are in more micro air. Whatever it is though, you're in Christ. You are different. You are transformed by the gospel. Live in thankfulness of the gospel and be the best employee you can possibly be and be the best employer you can possibly be and just wait to see what the Lord will do in, with your witness in that place that he's placed you. In the meantime, let us as a church maintain our focus on the gospel of Christ, on what is ours in Jesus, telling other people about this. And I think we will be surprised at how powerful an impact God uses this for. Let's pray. Lord, your lordship extends to every aspect of life. We spend some time considering it in connection with this passage and with our lives lived as employees and employers. I pray for everyone here to be encouraged by this word, that they see so clearly in these lessons that we've learned from your word of our restored relationships with each other, the transformed relationships we have, also between husbands and wives, the direction you've given us by your spirit's aid, parents and children, the grace that we can show back and forth in such a challenging relationship, but a rewarding one too that you have ordained and now between slaves and masters or employees and employers. Lord, we are new creatures in Christ. We want everyone to know Christ. Please work in us so that may be the case. In Jesus' name, amen.